0: This summer, Carolyn and I, as a matter of fact, just three weeks from now, we're going to celebrate our 24th anniversary, and, uh, and in our wedding vows, we uh, had a moment with the wedding rings where, uh, where we said to one another, we pledged, I pledge you my faithfulness, and that's kind of sort of become a, something that she and I say to each other when we know what we're talking about. Uh, I pledge to you my faithfulness. And, and for whatever reason, that little phrase has caught us. It's like the one thing from our wedding ceremony that we actually remember. I pledge you my faithfulness. So we jokingly say that to each other. We mean it, but we half-heartedly sometimes go, you know, jokingly, I, I pledge you my faithfulness. And it's just kind of a thing for us. You'll have to understand when you have kids that are teenagers, you just learn to make life interesting from time to time by doing goofy stuff. Uh, I think about that in light of today's passage. And for those of you who are clock watchers, understand that our sermon is going to be shorter today. But I do want to go through an important passage of the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, because the writer of Hebrews is making an important case to the believers who are being pressured to change what they believe, pressured to alter what they think and how they live by the culture around them. And he is telling them there is... Hope that can be yours in the promises that God made. When it comes to my celebrating my wife's faithfulness, her pledge of faithfulness to me, promises are only as good and only as valuable as the person making them. If you've ever had a, a, a business and had a college or a high school student working for you, they will say things like, I promise I will be on time. There is a, there's a relative level of truth to their statement. And after a while, if you have a teenager at home who says, I'll be home on time for my curfew, you begin to realize over time that that promise isn't very valuable because the history has been for a lot of these teens that they, they are late everywhere they go and that they, they aren't particularly responsible. I was a teenager once, I was that way as well. See, a promise is only valuable. If the person making the promise actually is trustworthy, as a pastor I've had the unfortunate duty of having to work with couples who have had their marriages fractured by one or the other's unfaithfulness, and I can't tell you and describe to you how painful it is to be in the room with a person who has been uh, cheated on, a person who has been betrayed by someone who pledged to them their faithfulness. And the idea that they'd be able to get that back, how do I get back to a place where you can trust me? And for a lot of the spouses that I've dealt with, the the offending spouses is is sort of befuddled. They're almost like, well, uh, you're paranoid now. If I'm five minutes late coming home, you have like a problem with this. And they don't get it, that they have so violated trust that they're going to have to work extra hard to rebuild confidence because a promise is only as good as the person that is making it. Our chapter last week leads into the section of chapter 6 this week. It's all about pursuing maturity. And we have said and will continue to say at Prism Church that it's not just about pursuing maturity. It's about how and why you pursue maturity. According to this section of Scripture, we're to focus on the gracious access we get to the presence of God that is given to us by His grace. We know that we understand the gospel when we continue re-entering the presence of God in the proverbial and very real heavenly holy of holies even after we've blown it again and again and again. You know you're a Christian when you are relying on the Lord and as you break your promise to him and you come into his presence confidently knowing you're going to receive mercy, you can receive forgiveness for this, that there's no need for you any longer to hide, that you can come into the presence of God and He can call you to obedience to Him by the fact that you actually get to come in there in the first place. The persecuted believers that were a part of the community of Hebrew Christians that are covered in our context are encouraged that they will in the end persevere as they focus on a renewal of hope. He addresses them by saying that the cure to spiritual apathy and apostasy is a hope motivated by God's faithfulness and love. The big idea for our passage today is the word promise. It's used multiple times in Hebrews chapter 6 verses 13 through 20. And there are two thoughts I have for you this morning that have great relevance for you and I as it comes to not only our understanding of the gospel that would free us from any fear of judgment and free us to turn and follow Jesus with all of our heart in obedience, but also a freedom to be able to trust Him and the promises He's made to us about the things in our lives that are important. So the first thing I'll share with you this morning is this. God's promise of salvation is strong and set. Let's read the passage again real quick from Hebrews 6. This is 16 through 18. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement... To hold fast to the hope set before us. This hope is strong. It It is set. It is something that you and I are guaranteed to access and to enjoy. When the author of Hebrews says that there is an oath that takes place, it brings to mind recently Carolyn and I to prepare for our kids to go to college and to refinance our home. And so what we had to do in the middle of this refinance process is is take this oath that everything we were saying was true. And so literally in our family room, this notary had us hold our hands up and say, do you swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. And you know, and we said, this is true, and, and then we went on with it. And perhaps you've been there before. I mean, this is effectively what you're doing in a, in a wedding when you pledge your faithfulness to another. You're, you're making an oath before God. I know in the real world that if you and I make promises to people, um, if they don't know you very well, sometimes the best thing to do is to have somebody they do know and trust make the promise for you. In the world of applying for jobs, it's called a recommendation. Somebody comes along and says, you know what? I know you say you're a really hard worker, but I don't know you very well. I do know this person, this lady that you worked with, or this man that you are a relative of, and they will vouch for your character. So, when people make promises, sometimes they have to declare oaths or get references to say, this promise is really valid. So, what does God have to do if he's going to say, okay, listen, I make you a promise? Now, you wouldn't think that God himself would ever have the need to kind of follow that up with a, and let me get a reference for you, because he's God, and you'd think he deserved to just be believed. But I love what it says here, and read this passage, verse 17 So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, don't let that get away from you. God desired that you and I would be more convinced that maybe perhaps he said, listen, I promise, but I recognize you're not well. You're broken people, you're humans, you're gonna not understand this, perhaps you can't see me. I want you to understand that I really like you a lot that I'm really on your side, that my promises really are true. So what I'm going to do is, I'm going to swear an oath by me. So help me, me. I will take care of your needs. I mean, this is what God has to do. He makes a promise, and then he makes an oath. And this is why it says in verse 18, two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. One is the promise. We all would say God doesn't lie. So he's made a promise I'm going to save you. Now, the references in the first few verses of our passage today are, once again, for a Hebrew audience, he's saying Abraham was made a promise. He was going to be the father of this huge nation. He embraced it by faith. And so when you were going to try to get people to really grasp something, you were going to get a group of Jewish Christians to say, I'm going to cling by faith to this truth, this thing we've been talking about, you're going to, if you want a group of Jewish Christians to really get it, you're going to invoke the name of Abraham. You're going to say, okay, you need this by faith? Let's talk about Abraham. And that's going to make people recognize. Now, if you don't know who Abraham was, he was the father of the Jewish nation. He is the one from whom the Jewish nation is said to have sprung forth, ultimately. One of his descendants was Jacob or Israel. The other one, far down the, further down the line, is Jesus, the son of Nazareth. I'm the son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. So you've got Abraham, before he died, hardly saw any of these relatives that were promised to him. I mean, he had very few descendants to speak of. He had to, by faith, believe that God was going to do something. And so the writer of Hebrews invokes this image to a group of people who are saying, how are we going to be sure that if we cling to Jesus as the son of God, that our sins will be forgiven, that we don't have to revert back to trying to be acceptable to God by virtue of our good works, that good works would come as a result of being secure in His presence. We, in order to be able to be people who publicly stand up and say, I believe the gospel, have to abandon any system of good works that would be a means of us feeling right before God. We are told that this is a strong encouragement to the Hebrew Christians that God would be faithful, that when they looked to him by faith in his grace, he would rescue them. This is why it says in verse 18, we have fled for refuge, that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. This fleeing for refuge, this was the Old Testament law's provision, that if you were being hunted. You were, somebody was after blood. They thought that they would deserve justice and you felt like you were innocent. You could flee to a city of refuge and cling to the horns of the altar and receive mercy and protection. And this is the image they're invoking to this group of Hebrews. Don't you know, you can flee from the judgment that you think would come because you're not holy enough, you can flee to this Jesus and cling to him and receive mercy. And he's trying to encourage them. Don't give up on your hope that Jesus is the Messiah. Don't give up on your hope. You can abandon the law as a means of finding peace with God. And by faith alone, like our father Abraham, be declared righteous because of what Jesus has done for you. His mercy will be there for you when you flee to Him, the ultimate city of refuge. You and I can know for sure that our salvation is set before us. In Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, Solomon writes, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. But it requires for you and I to be able to truly enjoy the freedom of the gospel. We have to abandon every pretense of our good works making us acceptable to the Father. I don't know if any of you have ever, um, like, repelled off of a, a, a mountain or some type of rock gym or something... There's this really interesting moment when you go rappelling where you have to get to the edge and your back is to whatever cliff or ledge you are leaning over and you have to kind of let out and then let go of this rope and, and you kind of, your weight sort of grabs you as you go down and then you literally have your feet against the wall and as you let go of the rope, the rappel, you kind of bounce down the wall with your feet pressing against it. Perhaps you've seen it if you've never done it before. But at the moment where you are at the point of leaning off the edge, if you don't let go of the rope, you will literally swing and your whole body will smash up against the wall. And you'll be laying there like this against a wall because you just weren't willing to let go of that which you thought, this will keep me safe. And now you just look like an idiot laying there against a wall because you wouldn't let go and and this is the image that I think of when I think of how deeply ingrained it is in so many of us to go wait, 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 wait God loves me independent of what I do I'm accepted in Christ independent of whether or not I struggle and whether or not I keep confessing the same thing over and over again and saying I'm sorry I really do want to turn and follow you I'm still acceptable to Him uh, we're so ingrained in us, in our culture, in our world, in our nature is you are not accepted until you perform. And so the, the Israelites were a people that were led by Abraham into saying we're going to trust by faith that the promise is good for us. Spurgeon says this, my man Charles Spurgeon. Jesus says take freely. He wants no payment or preparation. He seeks no recommendation from our virtuous emotions. If you have no good feelings, if you be but willing, you are invited, therefore, come. You have no belief and no repentance, come to him, and he will give them to you. Come just as you are and take freely without money and without price. He gives himself to the needy ones. It is a radical thought. And it produces a love for God when a person says, I'm no longer, I am going to abandon any sense that I'm more loved, more acceptable, more enjoyable to God in this sense if I do good things. Now, God granted, he does receive joy when we obey him. It does make a father happy when his daughter comes home on time from her curfew as our daughter always seems to. It does make a father sad when a child rebels. No question about it. A mother is grieved when her children don't respond to her like she wants. And in the same way, our Heavenly Father, the Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit can be given joy. But understand something. You're his child secure because you have clung by faith alone to what Jesus has done for you. When I started preaching to college students a decade and a half ago, it was at the beginning of the tattoo generation. You gotta understand, as a 49 year old, I missed that. If I get one now, it looks like a really sad midlife crisis, you know? Because you see an old guy get a tattoo, it's like, oh, dude, you're trying too hard. Get over it, you're old, you know? And so I, I missed my window, you know, because I rode a motorcycle and I would have looked really cool if I had a tat, you know, a couple of sleeves, I would have felt like a man. No, I'm just a plain old bald white guy. So there you go. All right, and that's all I get. When I started preaching to college students, is when they started like having tattoos, and so everybody was getting very excited. And I preached the message about faith alone, and about how you had to let go of the law as a means of making yourself acceptable to God, and cling to Jesus. And I invoked this this Latin phrase that was part of the Reformation, "Sola Fide," and I was all excited. And like a week later, this guy came up to me and he goes, look what I got. And he had tattooed on his arm the Latin phrase sola fide. And that scared me to death. Because I thought, oh, please don't ever tattoo anything I say on your body. (laughs) That is really not a safe thing to do. To this day, my friend Pat Simpson has sola fide, sola fide tattooed on his body. And I got to think of all the things you could get tattooed on your body. It's important that you'd get that one. Because it's a reminder which we forget. We are acceptable to God. He has accepted us. His promise to accept us is rock solid. It's so solid that he not only said, I promise you you're accepted by faith in Christ alone. But a promise is not enough. I'm going to make an oath on top of the promise. I shouldn't have to because I'm God, but I'm going to. I'm going to make a promise and then I'm going to swear. So help me, me you are secure. The promise is real. Remembering these promises is the practical application for us today. While God's promise of salvation is strong and set, God's promises for the saved are sure and steadfast. Verses 19 through 20, some practical application for you and I as we sail our way through the rough seas of this world. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Brooke's going to preach on Melchizedek next week. It's going to be awesome. I want to say to you this week that in verse 19, that reference of an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, has been written into classic Protestant hymns. It's not typically, though, the Lord is not typically what serves as the anchor for most Christians, at least the Christians in my culture. We tend to look to the things we want as our life's hope instead of putting our trust in our Heavenly Father, who's promised better care for us than we can imagine ourselves. Let me say that another way, in a very practical way. I've got things in my life that I would like to see happen. It is really easy for me if I need a house or if I'd like to see my son get into a particular college or if I'd like to uh, have something just go my way, it's really easy for me to think to myself, if I can just get this, then I'll be happy. So I begin to lay down my head at night thinking, what if this all happens? This would be wonderful. I've known people who were in dating relationships, as was I a couple of times before I got married, and I began to think, This person is the one. They're possibly the one. What if they're the one? Who, 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 who? Which, of course, is behavior that will drive them away and prove that they weren't the one, but that's needless to say. I'm just saying it's very easy for me, and maybe you'll join my raggedy band of broken people, to say, you know what? I'm going to put my hope in that which I'm wanting, that which I'm wishing for. What we're being called to in the Bible is to trust the gospel application to our lives that if we really are the beloved children of God, if God loved you so much that He said, listen, I want you to understand your salvation. I'm going to make you a promise, and I'm so desirous you would understand this promise that I'm going to make an oath on top of it. Don't need to, shouldn't have to, but I'm going to, because I like you, and I really want you to understand this. The gospel for us should then liberate you and I to face life circumstances and say, This job may not work out for me, but you know what? The God who loved me so much that he made a promise and then an oath on top of the promise is going to take care of the details of my life. This is the hope of the soul. This is the rock-solid assurance, that relationship that you think should be the one that will last for the rest of your life. It doesn't because somebody makes foolish choices or because somebody decides they don't want to be a part of that. If you've put your hope as I did twice, foolishly, that I want this person, your heart's going to get broken even more severely than it probably would just in a normal relationship ending because you have not said, as I didn't say, my hope is in God. God loves me. And if this person isn't the person I'm supposed to marry, then, then God, who made a promise and an oath, is going to take care of me too. The Apostle Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? Friend, if you can't see the generous provision of the gospel, it'll be very difficult to be rest assured that His provision for you will be best That God's promises for you are sure and steadfast, an anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. That's another reference to Hebrews chapter four, verse sixteen, where we're told He's a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. I found out Friday when I went to my nephew's graduation from Navy SEAL School in San Diego. Pretty, it's pretty humbling when your nephews are Marines and Navy SEALs, and, and you're a pastor. Um, it, you know, you just don't feel tough. If I'm going to be really frank, you know, uh, when you walk in with the collar, no, I didn't wear a collar, but th- that's my uniform, the white collar, you just sort of feel like a wuss. But anyway, all that to say, he told me he and his beautiful fiance, who's a treasure, they said, they said, "Will Uncle Chuck, will you, will you do our wedding?" And it's like, yeah. Because it's like, it's the first family member I'm getting to officiate their wedding. I've done a hundred-something weddings. um, But this is the first time I get to do and take them through the process of exchanging rings and saying to one another, I pledge you my faithfulness. The ring's an interesting thing. In the the ring portion of the ceremony, I I explain the significance of rings. Perhaps you've watched movies or heard of thoughts of these uh, rock stars who go on the road and the first thing they do when they get on their rock star bus is take off their wedding rings and in their mind, it sort of frees them to be the fools that they are and, and, and cheat on their spouses. Uh, you know, people will talk about the ring being this anchor that holds you down. And, and it's always viewed in pop culture as, you know, the ring is something that restricts you. And so uh, there has been this notion that a man would take off his ring and then he'd be free. The interesting thing is, is that the ring is really not my promise to Carolyn. This ring is her promise to me. This, this is, when I look down at this ring, I don't think, I have told Carolyn I'm going to be faithful. And I've been so good at it that I put a ring on my finger to remind me of how incredibly faithful I am. That's insane. That's not what this is. This is a ring to remind me that Carolyn has said, she is going to be faithful to me, and she has been. And and this ring reminds me of her kindness, her graciousness. I mean, come on. She shot way below her radar. I mean, she could have done much better. And, and so I'm thinking, wow, you really sacrificed for me. So, you know, I see the love of God in my marriage, and this is the reminder. It's a small aside. I couldn't get my ring off my finger anyway. I was... 30 pounds lighter at my wedding day. So I've been protected by any notion that I wouldn't have Carolyn's reminder of her faithfulness. It's a permanent reminder for me, almost like a tattoo. I say this to you because Jesus doesn't want you and I to go out and try to be good, to try to get him to like us more, to try to convince ourselves that it's okay. Okay. He wants you and I to simply wait comfortably in the grace of God and know beyond the shadow of a doubt that He is faithful to us even when we are faithless and that we've been given such a gift that we can come into His presence and say, you know what, I've blown it. And He says, you know what, all I see when I look at you is faithfulness because you have Christ. Our relationship with Him is based on His goodness in pursuing us, His kindness in pursuing us. His faithfulness is what is supposed to motivate us. It is what is supposed to drive us to this hope that for the Hebrew Christians was ultimately the means by which they would avoid spiritual apathy. My prayer today for us is that as we take communion, as we work our way through another week, that we would remember the Lord's faithfulness. That we would sing, great is thy faithfulness. That we would see the places in our lives where he has proven to us over and over and over again the smallest ways and the biggest ways and people, all of these things he has put in our lives to remind us, do you know how much I love you? Do you know how faithful I am to you? You can trust me. I've never given you a reason to distrust me. Rest in His promises. They are safe. They are secure. They are strong. They are set. Let us pray. Lord, today we're thankful for Your kindness to us. I pray that it would lead to, as the Scriptures say, repentance. That Your kindness, the overwhelming sense that we've been made acceptable to You by grace would cause us to want to love you in the same way marrying somebody amazed that we've found somebody that we love that loves us would cause us to want to be faithful to them, that their faithfulness, their kindness would stir us. Father, help us see and celebrate your unending and perfect faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.